Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we get into the action, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you who are arriving in the picturesque southern Swedish university town of Lund to start your studies there in the coming days. Or maybe you're just going to Lund for a visit, which would also make sense since it's a pretty town with a fascinating history. It doesn't really matter why you're going. I still recommend that you enjoy a stroll through the center of town listening to my audio-guided walking tour of Lund. You can download it, my tour of Lund using the Voice Map app. And you don't even have to go to Lund to enjoy the tour. If, for some inexplicable reason, you're not planning a visit to Lund anytime soon, you can also download the tour and listen to it at home or when visiting some other, less interesting city. If you prefer to visit Stockholm this fall, you can, of course, still download my tour of the Swedish capital as well using the Voice Map app. Okay, that's enough self-promotion for now. Let's get back to the show. After all, that is why you've tuned in. Last time, King Christian II finally managed to re-establish the Kalmar Union. But it was a hard-won victory. After having sent the Danish fleet two years in a row on failed expeditions, he decided to go another route and invaded over land in the first wintry weeks of 1520. This strategy worked, and Sweden fell to the advancing Danish forces until only Stockholm remained. That last stronghold of resistance was held by Christina Jöllenschana, the widow of the dead steward, Stensture Jr., who had died after he had his leg shot off at the Battle of the Frozen Lake Åsunden, where the Swedish peasant forces had tried to stop the advancing Union army. But in the end, the formidable widow also had to surrender when she realized no help was coming from abroad, due to King Christian's deal with the Hanseatic League to blockade Swedish ports. But before the last defenders swung open the gates of Stockholm, Christian had to promise to grant amnesty to all those who'd participated in the war against him, and their property would not be touched. He did, and on September 7, 1520, he entered Stockholm, a city he hadn't set foot in since he was 18 years old when he'd visited for his father's coronation. Stockholm was a little worse for wear after all the fighting, but the locals made an effort to tidy up, and on November 4th, Christian was crowned King of Sweden in an elaborate ceremony in St. Nicholas Church, a stone's throw from the Stockholm Castle, Three Crowns. Afterwards, there was a massive party that literally went on for days. Beer and wine flowed endlessly. Dinners, balls and other festivities followed, one after the other, until... All of a sudden, the mood shifted. Episode 70, Bloodbath. Wednesday morning, November 7th, the party to celebrate the coronation of Christian II as King of Sweden had been going on for days already. When yet another day of festivities was about to kick off, three clerics, led by the young, hot-headed Archbishop Gustav Trolle, approached the king. The Archbishop handed Christian a document. It was an accusation against some of the men who had led the resistance against the Danish invasion and the defense of Stockholm. But the accusation didn't concern their resistance. How could it? After all, they'd been promised amnesty for that. That was water under the bridge. No, the accusation put forward by the young archbishop was about the treatment of Gustav Trolle himself, his imprisonment and the destruction of his castle. 
The archbishop claimed that this made them heretics because they had attacked a man of the church. Gustav Trolle pointed out that even according to the capitulation agreement, the archbishop was entitled to compensation for the way he had been treated. We don't know if the intervention was carried out on Christian's request or if the archbishop acted on his own initiative, but the accusation and demand to be compensated radically changed the political situation in Stockholm. The circle of leading men surrounding Christina Gillenshana, Sten Stewart Jr.'s widow, who had been promised amnesty and rewards for their capitulation to Christian, were all of a sudden exposed to a new danger. The king had been handed a weapon to deal with them if he chose to do so. A few hours later, in the early afternoon, the king called all the coronation guests to the great hall at the castle. Most guests probably thought the evening's festivities were about to start a little early, and hurried to the hall ready to party. Maybe they'd be... But maybe they would have been a little less excited if they'd noticed that at the same time the gates to the castle were shut and locked. Christian had given clear orders. No one was to be let out. But apparently the orders hadn't been all that categorical about letting people in. And that morning, a prominent nobleman called Erik Johansson Vasa, a prominent member of the Swedish Council of the Realm, had been out and about on some errand. When he returned to the castle, he found the gates locked and the guards didn't want to open them to let him in either. This made him fly into a rage, something members of his family tended to do and will have reason to return to the infamously ill-tempered members of the Vasa family in the future. Erik Johansson Vasa shouted and threatened and demanded to be admitted into the castle until the guards relented and let him in. Then they closed the gates and locked them behind him again. When all the guests had gathered in the great hall of the castle, the archbishop was asked to read aloud his accusation and its list of crimes against the church, carried out by Stensture Jr. and other noblemen the archbishop named by name, as well as unspecified members of the leadership of Stockholm. When she heard the names, Christina Gillenshana couldn't keep quiet. Except herself and her dead husband, Stensture Jr., two of her brothers were also on the list. She was furious about the accusations against them and the way this child archbishop dared to drag her late husband's good name through the mud. She fetched that document signed by all the leading persons, nobles, prelates, burghers and peasants from three years previous when they collectively took responsibility for the decision to oust the archbishop and to tear down his castle. If you don't remember what I refer to, I recommend to you go back to listen to the last episode, The Final Showdown. Everyone had been responsible. If Christian wanted to punish anyone, he needed to punish everyone. And surely that was impossible. Besides, he'd granted a general amnesty to them all. Reminding everyone of that document turned out to be a bit of a mistake. A huge mistake, actually. Instead of working in the favor of the accused, it just added a large number of new names to the list of people the archbishop wanted to have punished for heresy. Gustav Trolle now demanded that all those who had put their seals on the document would be punished for their crimes against him, and therefore against the Holy Church, which he represented. And that crime hadn't been covered by Christian's promise of amnesty. So there. 
That meant that almost the whole Swedish national leadership now was accused of heresy, a very serious charge in the Middle Ages. As the predicament they found themselves in started to dawn on the assembled guests, Bishop Brask from Linköping stepped forward. He asked that his seal be removed from the document that Christina Jyllenshana had fetched. When the seal was pried off the page, a small folded piece of paper was found hidden underneath. It was a note saying, I am forced to do this. After that dramatic revelation, showing that Bishop Brask had been coerced to agree to the illegal treatment of the archbishop, he was removed from the list of accused. The incident also gave rise to a saying in Swedish, and to this day you can use the phrase a brask note to mean a reservation, usually to hedge one's bets, sometimes in a cowardly manner. Anyway, the rest of the accused now realized that they had turned from honored guests to prisoners accused of a serious crime. The rest of the day was spent in heated debate, sometimes more akin to a shouting match between the accuser and the accused. When darkness fell, which it does fairly early in November in Stockholm, the king stood up and left the great hall. The prisoners were led away and locked up for the night in various locations around the castle. Some had to spend the night in the chapel, some in the tower, three crowns, that had given the castle its name, and others were locked up in other secure locations on the premises. The following morning, heralds passed through the city with trumpeters and declared that a curfew was in effect and that no one was to leave their homes. For most of the townspeople of Stockholm, that was the first sign that something was wrong. As far as they were aware, they were in the middle of a giant celebration. But now the mood had shifted and something was definitely going on. And it wasn't good. At the same time, at the castle, a court was assembled in haste to handle the archbishop's accusation of heresy. The judges consisted of 14 priests, including several bishops, even Hans Brask, who had been one of the accused the day before, but had been let off after his little trick with a note under his seal. Even more noteworthy was the fact that the archbishop Gustav Trolle himself, the accuser, was also one of the judges. Perhaps not exactly the ideal arrangement for a fair trial. The trial may not have been fair, but at least it was over quickly. The result was more or less a foregone conclusion, and the verdict was handed down the following morning, November 9th. The panel of judges found the defendants guilty of heresy for their attack on the archbishop. They were all condemned to death, and the judges asked the king to carry out their sentences immediately. Now everything happened quickly. The condemned weren't even allowed a last confession before they were shoved off to the Stockholm main square, a stone's throw away from the castle. The first prisoners who were to be executed were two bishops, who were also members of the Council of the Realm. When the panel of judges realized that the two bishops were actually going to be killed and not pardoned as they had expected, they started to protest. The king had no right to execute bishops, they claimed. After all, a secular violation of ecclesiastical immunity was what this whole trial had been about in the first place. But their protests were met by a stark message. If they insisted on objecting to the executions, they joined the ranks of the traitors having their heads cut off. So they quickly piped down. The square was already full of people. Soldiers surrounded the place of execution in the middle, and behind them, throngs of curious spectators were trying to get a look at the proceedings. 
On the balcony of the city hall, members of the Swedish and Danish councils of the realm stood as witnesses. Before the execution started, a vague justification was read from the balcony. Just like the judges, Bishop Vincent of Skara had assumed that he'd be pardoned by the king, and when he finally realized that he was actually about to be executed, he was genuinely surprised. As he was led to the square, the bishop shouted that the justification for the execution was a lie, that the king was a liar who had no right to execute him according to canon law, and he demanded to get the actual verdict read out loud, not just some flimsy excuse. For good measure, the bishop added that God would punish the king for what he was about to do. But his protests were in vain. The executioner cut off the head of the two bishops, first Matthew of Strengness, who ironically was actually one of the people who had worked the hardest to achieve a reconciliation with Christian II, convincing everyone else on the council to give up their assistance to the Danes. That didn't help him though, and once he'd been beheaded, his severed head was placed between his feet. The next victim was the shouting Bishop Vincent. He didn't even get his head placed between his feet. Instead, it was chucked into a barrel. When the two bishops had been dispatched, the soldiers started to push the convicted nobleman forward. Several of the aristos started to shout and cry, but there was nothing they could do at that point. All 15 of them had their heads cut off using a sword, as was their privilege as members of the nobility. Among the victims were Christina Jelenshana's two brothers and Erik Johansson Vasa, the man who had insisted on being let into the castle after the gates had been locked. After the executioner had cut the heads of all the nobles, including six members of the Council of the Realm, the barrel where he had chucked all the severed heads was full. Then, to add to the general gloomy mood, it started to rain. The water mixed with the blood from the pile of bodies, and streams of blood flowed down the streets leading from the square. The next category of victims to be executed were the burghers of Stockholm. Even though many of them were quite prominent in the city, such as the mayor, they were still all commoners. That meant that they didn't get their heads cut off with a sword, but had to make do with a less fancy tool, such as an axe. Others, even further down the social pecking order, didn't even get that much. Instead, they were hung like simple thieves. Some of those who were convicted hadn't been arrested the previous day, and they were collected from their homes as the executions progressed. Others, who hadn't necessarily been convicted at all, were grabbed from the throngs of spectators at the square. One man, who apparently cried a little too loudly when he watched the executions, was arrested and executed himself for showing pity on the traitors, even though he had nothing whatsoever to do with the actual ousting of Archbishop Gustav Trolle. Another man, a combined doctor-slash-barber, was cutting a customer's beard when soldiers burst in and brought him to the square to be executed. He didn't have anything to do with the move against the archbishop either. In other words, there was chaos, and no one seemed to be safe once the killing had started. But sometimes the chaos could work in your favour. One of the convicted men was so fat that the soldiers didn't manage to hang him, and so he was spared. He later went on to become the mayor of Stockholm. In parallel with the increasingly messy and chaotic killing on the main square, the king's soldiers had already started to confiscate all the property belonging to the victims. Their families were driven out of their houses into the streets with nothing but their clothes on their backs. According to the law, property of convicted heretics should have gone to the church, but King Christian kept it for himself. At nightfall, the execution stopped, but only because it was too dark to continue, not because there weren't any more people to kill. 
The following morning, the executioner got back to work and the remaining burghers and various servants were finished off on the second day of killings. At least 82 people were executed in this event known in history as the Stockholm bloodbath. The basis for this figure is that the executioner later claimed to have been paid for 82 beheadings. But because a considerable number of victims weren't beheaded at all, but rather hanged, the number of executed was most likely considerably higher. Since no one bothered to record who they were, scholars can't agree on the final number of victims, but most estimates land somewhere between 100 and 120 people. According to a legend, which almost certainly originated in later propaganda, King Christian gave Christina Jyllenshana, the widow of the last steward of the realm, the opportunity to choose her own death, hanging, burning, or being buried alive. But that's almost certainly not true. At least it didn't happen, because even though Christina Jyllenshana was also convicted, she wasn't executed. Instead, she was imprisoned and all her property was confiscated. That meant she was dead to the world in a way, which seems to have been enough for King Christian. After the last man had been executed, the bodies were left in the pile on the main square. The blood had mixed with the dirt in the streets and the rain had stained the streets red. No one was allowed to touch the bodies, except the stray dogs that had started to gnaw at various limbs sticking out. On Friday, heralds once again announced that no one was allowed outside the following day. On the morning of Saturday, November 10th, at first light the bodies were collected and brought outside the city. Christian soldiers had lit fires south of Stockholm. Since the victims had been convicted of heresy, they were denied a Christian funeral, and instead their corpses were burned. This was a major taboo at the time, and the ultimate humiliating punishment. Even the body of Stensture Jr., who had been buried six months previously after the steward's death on the ice of Lake Mälaren, was dug up and thrown onto the pyre. Stensture had shared a grave with one of his sons, a boy who had died only a few days old. His body was also dug up and thrown to the flames. The same evening, King Christian arranged a feast to celebrate the news that his wife, Queen Elizabeth, had given birth to a daughter. The party was held at Stockholm City Hall, so the guests had to pass over the square where the bodies had been piled high that same morning. Hopefully, the rain had washed most of the blood out of the way by the time the party started. The Stockholm bloodbath has echoed through Swedish history, and it proved to be a decisive event in the political development in Scandinavia. We'll get back to the political consequences of the bloodbath next time. But for now, I'd like to pause for some reflections and speculations about what made Christian II go ahead with these mass executions. After all, he had just won the war and been crowned king of Sweden. He was triumphant. The Swedish nobility had surrendered. Why kill so many of them? On the other hand, his father and grandfather could have told him all about the fickle nature of aristocratic loyalty. The Swedish nobility had sworn fealty to more than one Danish king in the past, only to turn around and rebel as soon as they thought they had the chance to rid themselves of Danish control. Maybe the shock of the killing and of such a large part of the Swedish elite on one fell swoop, combined with the macabre sight and stench connected to the executions themselves, were meant to scare any and all remaining opponents of the king into submission. Maybe anyone who thought of rising up against King Christian was supposed to shudder at the memory of what had happened and give up on any plans of a rebellion before it had begun. Or maybe Christian felt the whole ugly business was forced upon him and that his hands were tied. 
After all, at least on the face of it, it wasn't the king who had initiated the trial and the executions. The person who had insisted on a reckoning was the archbishop, Gustav Trolle. The bloodbath didn't only get rid of Christian's enemies, but also of Gustav's. Perhaps Gustav Trolle saw this as a chance to ensure that he'd be the unquestioned authority in a Sweden ruled remotely by Christian II. Or maybe he was just after revenge. After all, the archbishop was a young, hot-headed and proud man who felt his honour as a nobleman and a senior cleric had been trampled on by Stenstude Jr. and many of the leading members of the high nobility. Surely, after this, they would all know better than to disrespect him ever again. But if the driving force behind the whole affair really was the archbishop, why did King Christian go along with it? Did he really feel forced? It's true that the church was an important power player, and in the past it had demonstrated that it could enforce its will against princes sometimes. But on the other hand, we've seen how Christian, as viceroy in Norway, displayed complete disregard for the church and the immunity of clerics when he incarcerated the Bishop of Hamar for his leading role in a failed uprising against royal authority in Norway. So clearly, Christian had no qualms about riding roughshod over the church when it suited him. In addition, the Stockholm bloodbath itself was a violation of clerical immunity and inviolability, at least as far as the two executed bishops were concerned. The church, perhaps with the exception of the Archbishop of Sweden, would be appalled by the execution of two of its senior members, so killing them couldn't possibly be construed as bowing to church pressure. And King Christian knew it. We know he knew it because he was quick to try and spin the event, casting it in more favourable light. Or in other words, he tried to lie about what had happened to keep the ecclesiastical protests to a minimum. The key was to make sure no one who mattered within the church found out that the two bishops had been executed in violation of canon law. So, in a report to the Pope, Christian tried to lie and said that there had been an assassination attempt on his life. Gunpowder under the great hall in the castle was supposed to have been set on fire. Luckily, the attempt had failed and the assassins had been taken care of, but in the fighting two bishops had unfortunately also been killed. It was tragic, the king asserted, but completely unintentional. It had all been too chaotic, a real bloodbath. The king actually used the word, and that may have been the first time anyone called what had happened a bloodbath, a name that has stuck through the centuries. Unfortunately for Christian, though, the Pope doesn't seem to have bought this version of events, possibly because there were so many witnesses who had seen what really happened, and possibly because the king's own messaging wasn't consistent. Already on November 9th, so the same day the executions were taking place, the king had a letter sent out all over Sweden explaining what had happened. In that letter, Christian claimed that the executed had attacked the archbishop and other bishops and behaved in a way that made them heretics. Then he stressed that a church trial had been conducted where all the judges had been priests. These priests convicted the heretics and the king only executed them as the church had asked him to do and he had to do according to St. Eric's law. He ended his letter expressing the hope that peace and quiet would reign in the land from now on. So maybe the whole intervention by the archbishop was a piece of theatre orchestrated by the king. He had promised amnesty to these Swedish opponents, so he wasn't allowed to touch them, even though he really, really wanted to. 
From that perspective, the accusation of heresy was an excellent excuse for him to stamp out his opponents without ostensibly having to break his promise to forgive and forget. So maybe he hoped to eat his cake and have it too. He got to keep his promise, but still managed to get rid of potential future rebels and to install a new and loyal leadership in Sweden and in Stockholm. The city can be more important than what it appears at first glance in this context. The burghers who were executed usually fade away into the shadows created by the high drama of the executions of the bishops and the noblemen, but the fact of the matter is that taking control over Stockholm was probably just as important as taking control over the Council of the Realm. Before the bloodbath, Stockholm was the gateway and export harbour for the silver, copper and iron mines in Dalarna. Mining was an important source of income already in the Middle Ages and would grow increasingly important in the years to come. Stockholm was in league with Lübeck, and by replacing the city leadership, Christian probably hoped to force the city to align with his own trading policy, favouring the Dutch over the Hanseatic League. The suspicion that so many of the leading burghers of Stockholm had been included among the victims of the bloodbath in order to facilitate the king's financial policies is only strengthened by the fact that few, if any of them, had anything to do with the actual decision to oust, rob and incarcerate the archbishop. That is the basis for the whole heresy charge and the justification for the executions. The feeling that the Stockholm bloodbath had little to do with the rough treatment of the Archbishop Gustav Trolle and more to do with the king's desire to tighten his grip over Sweden is strengthened even further when considering what happened next. To begin with, soon after the bloodbath, King Christian sent agents to Finland to arrest and execute noblemen there who had been connected to Stenstude Jr., but not necessarily to the decision to attack the archbishop. Then, in December, the king decided it was time to return home to Denmark. Since it was already late in the year, he chose to travel over land, and on the way south, in Norrköping, Linköping, Vastena and Jönköping, he arrested people who were known to have been loyal to Stenstere Jr., or who had ties to him, which made the king suspect that they could have been loyal to him. The arrested men were then executed. No more cover story about heresy seems to have been needed because, again, many of the victims had no connection to the treatment of the Archbishop Gustav Trolle. As a last morbid hurrah, King Christian stopped at Nydala Monastery. The monks there were also arrested and killed by drowning. In the Monastery Chronicle, a survivor of the event called the king a tyrant for the killing of these monks, and that's how he's been known in Swedish historiography for half a millennium. Christian the Tyrant. But the king couldn't care less about nasty epithets used about him in some musty monastic chronicle. When he returned home to Denmark and his wife to meet his newborn daughter for the first time, he thought, or at least hoped, that he'd crushed all opposition in Sweden. From now on, there would be no one left in Sweden to rebel against him, and through this admittedly harsh but effective action, he had secured the survival of the Kalmar Union. Next time, we'll see how well that prediction stood up against the scrutiny of reality. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. 
I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.